0: Get this thing running here. I think we're running now. So we'll be uh, <coughs> we'll be back in Genesis today. Uh, you can do whatever. It's uh, <coughs> it's just you're uh, you're still left over. Uh, this is I guess hangover from last night. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that maybe that Baptist wine you were passing around wasn't as Baptist as you thought it was. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. So, anyway, great. Uh, so two uh, two weeks ago, uh, two Sundays ago, I was gone and. And uh Jim graciously filled in for me and you and you all talked about uh world views and uh then uh, last week, you ladies had your Christmas tea. I trust that was profitable time and uh And we guys kind of hung together here, and we talked about uh, several things actually. We talked uh, <laughs> to about some guy stuff. an, hour. Pardon? About an hour. yeah, yeah, it's all right, uh-huh. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yes, I actually, uh, there you go. Is that, is that it? Yeah. I assigned it to the guys to make sure their wives got one, but, so, uh, <clears throat> but we talked a little bit about, uh, Tiger Woods last week, <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> we talked about, uh, learning lessons from other people's mistakes. <laughs> and, uh, and we talked about the Manhattan Declaration, and if you uh, didn't hear about the Manhattan Declaration, ask your husband or go to ManhattanDeclaration.org. You definitely want to uh, familiarize yourself with that and, and find out whether or not uh, that's something you want to participate in. And, don't get confused with the Manhattan Project. That's right. Yeah, don't yeah, it's not the Manhattan Project as right. Jim erroneously thought. It was the Manhattan Declaration dot org. Okay. And then we talked uh <coughs> we talked some more about Worldview. We followed up on that subject and we tried to find some ways to uh, we picked an area and we just kinda tried to apply principles of worldview and understanding that area. We happened to talk about the area of poverty last week uh, as uh worldview as our worldview reflects on that. So that's what we did last week while you ladies were gone. And today, we want to pick up again uh, in Genesis. And we are in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, and uh, the last couple weeks weeks, uh, the last couple lessons, I should say, in Genesis, we did uh, chapter 10. We looked at the table of nations. And then uh, the last time we were together, we looked at the first uh, nine verses of chapter 11, which was about the Tower of Babel so, let me just see if, you know, I know you all are getting pretty senile here in your old age, but can you remember anything we talked about from the lesson on the Tower of Babel three weeks ago? I read about last night, but I don't remember that it was a a couple of weeks ago. In fact, uh, before language was used, Maybe now the case about the week cover is that communication would not have been even people in the same language group. Communication would have been um, difficult as it is. Yeah. People would have been more easily understood mm-hmm. what you think of. Yeah, yeah. Communication was much easier at that point. Yes. Uh thought you mean about the might have been to also,
1: have been words, words, Oh, okay,
0: okay. You know, yeah. if you look at a lot of the ancient civilizations, they really take off once they have writing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Was if that had, maybe that was um, possibly, possibly. Yeah. We'll talk some more about that incidentally today. But. One thing we concluded, or I concluded after we talk about it, men... Uh, discovered how to make bricks and make better buildings and so men are clever but god doesn't let that stop him yeah yeah, yeah yeah and actually it's been so long ago i don't remember whether we talked about this or not but i think one of the things that we see in that story is is that technology can be both good and bad you <laughs> that technology is really neutral and it's a question of how we will how we use it and in this case mankind chose to use technology in a way that dishonored the Lord and was destructive even to human society. And so God had to intervene and, and, uh, and uh, disperse the nations. So when God then intervened there at Babel and, and, uh, and caused all these people groups to start speaking with different languages and, they, and then they scattered all over the face of the earth, was God just writing them off? And <laughs> you say no what the-? okay and and so he so he had a chosen people and then you just dismiss all the rest of them or what well maybe it's just part of his plan but to uh, help them understand or get them to realize that they uh, they can't build themselves or fix themselves up. okay okay to that's on that's certainly part of it yes uh but But clearly, we understand why did god then as as we 're going to discover in the next few weeks, why did God uh, pick uh, this special people? Why did He pick the descendants of Abraham? What was his purpose in doing that bless to bless all the nations right so so, even though He has now dispersed the nations all over the face of the earth it 's not his intention that they that they just be forgotten and left to to perish in their sin, but He has a plan. To redeem them, okay? Now, as you look at this map that I just turned around here, uh, please don't laugh at my my uh, cartography skills here, but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about geography today. So, that's the point of that. Uh, <coughs> of that. And you have, probably have a better map in the back of your Bible, but this is a little easier to see. Okay, so we're picking up the story now in Genesis chapter 11. We've had the Tower of Babel. We've had the scattering of the nations. uh and, and, uh, and that really then uh, concludes uh, that particular Taladot, the Taladot or the account of the generations of the sons of Noah. So if you'll remember, we've had several Taladots or accounts in which the book of Genesis so far has been broken down. There's a total of 10 of them. And we have talked about the account of the generations of the heavens and the earth and then an account of the of uh, of Adam, the generations of Adam, and then the account of the generations of Seth, and then the account of the generations of Noah, and then uh, the one we just finished was the account of the generations of uh, Noah's sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that's what gets us through then the Tower of Babel. Now we're going to pick it up with the account of the records of the generations of Shem. So you'll notice that he's done a... He's given us a Taladot which generally covered all three of the sons of Noah and kind of all their descendants or most of their descendants, and he's given us that. Now we're starting another division, and this division focuses exclusively on one of the, the descendants of one of the sons of Noah, and that is Shem. So we're kind of backtracking a little bit, and we're going to cover some ground that we've already covered. And this Taladot is, is uh, I think... Uh, the shortest one that we're going to encounter. It's just a few verses long. Uh, it'll take us down uh, through verse 26. And then we're going to pick up uh, the next Taladat, which is the account of the generations of Terah. So today we're going to look at one entire Taladot and begin looking at the subsequent Taladot. And the, and the Taladot that we begin in, chap- in verse 27, the Taladot or the account of the generations of Terah, is really the beginning of the story of Abraham, and this particular account or Taladot will be a number of chapters long. So we're going to spend a long time in the next uh, in the next one that we begin today. So, so we're really basically what we're doing at this point today is we're going to just lay a lot of foundational material because we're going to be spending a number of weeks on the life of Abraham. Okay, and, and uh, appropriately so because uh, not only is a large section of Genesis dedicated to Abraham and his story, but he is foundational to our Christian faith. So so we want to spend a lot of time thinking about Abraham. And, and to do that, we need to have a foundational understanding of Abraham and just some basic facts about him and understanding and knowledge about him. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 11 and we'll read down through the end of chapter 11 down through verse 32 these are the records of the generations of shem shem was 100 years old and became the father of arpachshad who lived uh, uh, 2 years after the flood excuse me and shem lived 500 years after he became the father of arpachshad and had other sons and daughters arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shela, and Arpachshad lived 400 years and uh, excuse me 403 years and he became the father of Shela, and after and had, he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eb, Eber or Eber, and Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived four hundred and thirty years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived thirty years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived two hundred and nine years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. Ru lived thirty two years and became the father of Serg. And Ru lived two hundred and seven years after he became the father of Serg, and he had other sons and daughters. Sarg lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarg lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 39 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And that's the end of that Taladot. And then he begins again in verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. And that brings us up really to the to the uh, the beginning, really the beginning of the story of Abraham. As as we see, as we, next week we'll get into the call of Abraham, etc. So, well, you look at that passage and you go, "Okay, what are we supposed to learn from all this?" Okay, well, let's take that. Let's take that. Uh, the Taladot there of the sons of Shem first, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Let me pass out another uh, pass uh, flyer here. Uh, was it common if they married their nieces? Uh, I don't know how common it was, but it was practiced. Yes, it was practiced. Okay, And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and not only, uh, as we'll see here in, uh, in, in the verse we looked at here, not only did... Uh, did Nahor do that, but Abraham did it too when he married Sarai he either married his half sister or his niece we don't know for sure uh, what's whether Sarah was uh, uh, an actual half sister or where, whether she was his niece, but he refers to her as his half sister uh later in the in Genesis, and we'll actually get to that passage eventually but uh so yeah that's uh it kind of you go was, things were different then, okay, and actually under the Old Testament law, under the Mosaic law, and hundreds of years later, God eventually prohibits that kind of marriage. But at this point, apparently, it wasn't prohibited. Um, but uh, now, this little chart that I just passed out to you is not—it's uh, not inspired, and it's not even really very well done. I did it quite quickly the other day when I had a little bit of time. And uh, <clears throat> but the idea of the chart is, is uh, a couple ideas. Is one is just to help you visually understand. What we just read in Genesis, okay? You read all those numbers and you read those ages and things like that, and you go, well, you know, how do I, how do I connect all this stuff? And the idea here is to show you, uh, uh, in in some kind of a rough sense, uh, when these guys were born and how long they lived before they gave, before they fathered their, the next uh, child in the genealogy. Typically, we assume that the next one in the list is, is the firstborn. There are some cases where mm-hmm. we're not sure whether or not the next individual in the list is the firstborn or not. Scripture doesn't really tell us for certain. So, uh, so we don't always know whether or not uh, it's the firstborn. We assume that Parkshad Park was Shem's firstborn because he was born uh, two years after the flood. And that probably means when it says two years after the flood, that probably means two years after the beginning of the flood. So, in other words, our Apakshad was probably born approximately a year after Noah and his three sons uh, came off the ark, okay? <clears throat> and uh, and the, what we notice here is that, <clears throat> is that Moses, as he's recording for us this particular Taladot, and recording this part of the genealogy, he is now focused exclusively on Shem. We've gone through this whole table of nations. We talked about all these different nations. And then in the previous halakot we talked about the three sons of Noah and we looked at descendants from all three of those sons. But now he focuses just on Shem and just and and, and he gives us a, a, a linear genealogy here, meaning he goes from he he gives us Shem's son and then our Arpachshad's son. He just gives us one son all the way down, so it's very linear. He doesn't give us a, a, a branching out at all. So So it's a very directed, linear genealogy. Why do you think he's doing that? Why has he gone back and just singled, after he's already given us Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their descendants, why does he go back now and give us just Shem and give us a linear genealogy descending from Shem? Shem. Okay, he's starting to focus on the Messiah. He's starting to focus on what we what we've called all the way through our study in Genesis, the righteous line. Okay, so what we're looking at here is the righteous line. And when we started our study in Genesis, remember, I told you that all the way through Genesis, we're going to be we're going to be following this righteous line all the way through Genesis. Okay, and at times we'll stop, as I said, and we'll take detours and we'll go off on some other genealogies to uh, a little ways. But eventually we always come back, we always come back to the righteous line. Okay? Now, <clears throat> we, call it, we call it the righteous line because as we saw when we were clear back in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that there was a promise that there would be two seeds. There would be the seed of the woman and there would be the seed of the serpent. And, and, and we saw at that point that the seed of the woman was... Uh, is actually all of those who are righteous or all those who live by faith, okay? That's the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent is everybody else. The seed of the serpent is everyone who does not live by faith, okay? Uh, so, now we, so basically what the writer of Genesis, what Moses is doing here is he's, he's, he's helping us focus on this righteous line, okay? But that is, to some degree, a bit of a misnomer, okay? And I've explained this before. I call it the righteous line, but it's a bit of a misnomer because not everybody in the line is righteous, okay? And we're going to see that quite emphatically in this list of names that we go through today and as we look at them a little bit closer. Not everybody in the line is righteous. So you'll notice that that on the chart I handed out today, instead of calling it the righteous line, to help you understand a little more clearly, Precisely what's really going on here is I've called it the line of promise because that's what's really important. That's what the writer of Genesis is really trying to communicate to us is that is that God made a promise in the garden that there would be a seed, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Okay, and that. And and, and what he's doing then all the way through the book of Genesis is showing us how God, regardless of what man does, is determined to keep that promise. And so he's going to fulfill his promise to give us one who would crush the head of the serpent. And he's showing us how he's accomplishing that right down through this line that he's pursuing. And of course, initially, uh, it appears that he was going to do it through Abel, but Cain murdered Abel. And so in Abel's place, God gave Seth. And so now this righteous line or this line of promise follows from Seth and from his descendants all the way through until ultimately you get, of course, to the Messiah. So, So that's the point. That's what's going on here. Now, in this list of 10 or so names that we've just read here in this chapter, Uh, in in the linear genealogy, how many of these names actually stand out as somebody significant to you? Pretty much none of them. Okay. Well, we might pick a few that we know a little bit about. Okay. First one would be... Well, let's just go down through the list. In the list there... Beginning in verse 10, who do we know anything about? Who's the first one we know something about? Shem, okay. And Shem is whom? Noah's He's Noah's son, okay. He, he, I always want to say he gives birth, but he really didn't. He fathered, he fathered our pock shot a year after the flood, okay. So one of the things we know about Shem is that he was on the ark. Okay, so here's a guy who went through the flood. This will become significant in a, in, in a few minutes, minutes as we go on. But so he he was on the ark and he went through the flood. We know something else about him incidentally because there was an incident that occurred uh, sometime shortly after they came off the ark and he played a role in that incident. Do you remember what that was? He honored his father. Okay, he honored his father. He he uh uh in in uh contrast to, to Ham, Japheth and and uh Shem honored their father and covered their father's shame. Okay? So we know that we know about Shem that he's a very upright man. He's gone he's come through on the ark, he is, is apparently a man of faith. Okay? Uh so as we go down through the list, who's the next name we know something about? Is <clears> that a Yes. Mm-hmm. There's one in between now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of them in between there. Peleg, okay. Now, you all know about Peleg, right? What do you remember about Peleg? For in his days, the earth was divided. Okay. Where do you get that? Uh, Okay. See, there's a guy that was listening the other day. (laughs) Okay. Peleg was alive when the earth was divided. Meaning what? The Tower of Babel, okay, so we don't know a lot about Peleg, but we do know that he was alive uh, at the time of the Tower of Babel. We know he had a brother by the name of Joctim okay and and in the previous genealogy, the genealogies of Shem Ham and Japheth are the sons of Noah when he's doing all three of them As he, when he comes down in the genealogy of Shem and he gets to he gets to Eber and Eber's two sons, he talks about his two sons, he talks about Joctim, and he tells us about the descendants of Joctim, but in reference to Eber, the verse that uh, that we just read right there, uh, or in reference to Pelag, the verse we just read right there, when he gets to that point in genealogy, he, te- he tells us about Peleg, but he doesn't tell us about any of Pelag's descendants, in contrast to having just told us about Peleg's brother's descendants. So he just stops. In the previous genealogy, he just stops at Peleg and he just makes the point that Peleg lived during the time of the Tower of Babel. Okay? But now he's going to pick up the story. He's, he's gone back. He's retraced his steps. He's brought us back to Peleg. And now he's going to go on and tell us about Peleg's descendants, at least linear, uh, uh, linear give us a linear genealogy from Pelag on down. So we know something about Peleg. Who's the next one in the list that we know something about? This thing about Pelig, you, know, you don't know when, but you know, looking at your little chart, and you know, all of his ancestors were still alive too at the time he was born. Yes. So well, they, they were alive probably alive and Earth was divided. Yes. And since his name means that, it's probably an indication it happened right around birth, for perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, may have been. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why pick him? He could have picked any anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, incidentally, uh, as I'm looking at the chart here, I'm glad you pulled my, uh, pointed my attention to this. That line for Pelag probably should go down a little further. Like I said, it wasn't very carefully drawn, but if you add the numbers up from Pelag down to Abram, uh, Pelag was probably alive a few years, uh, two, three, four, five years or so at least, after Abram was born. So uh, that line probably should overlap the birth of Abram uh, to some degree. Uh, like I said, the lines aren't real carefully drawn there. So. So, at any rate, we have Pelag. And then who would be the next one we would know something about? Okay. Well, actually, we are going to learn some things about, uh, about a Nahor, but not that Nahor. You'll notice there are two Nahors in this story. There's Nahor, the father of Terah, and there's Nahor, the son of Terah. Okay, So there's actually two Nahors. And we know something about the second one, but we really don't know anything about the first one. But we know some things about Terah. What do we know about Terah? What's the first most obvious thing we know about Terah? He's the father of Abram. Okay, He's the father of Abram. We learn some other things about Terah uh, later in Scripture. We learn from Joshua in Joshua chapter 24 at the at the end of Joshua's life as he's speaking to the children of Israel, telling them some things that God had, had to say to them. One of the things that God told the children of Israel there at the end of Joshua through Joshua is that Terah, the father of Abraham and Abraham's other fathers, meaning some of his other uh, uh, ancestors, uh, so presumably Terah, presumably Nahor, the father of Terah, maybe some more, were idol worshipers. Okay, Now this is important for us to know and this will play an important role as we go through the story of Abraham and as we get into the story of Isaac and Rebekah and ultimately Jacob and and Laban and Leah and all these others. As we get into those stories, this whole realization, it helps us to realize what's going on when we understand that Abr- Abram's immediate family were idol worshippers. okay? So, just keep that in mind. Uh, so, then, we, of course, we come to Abram. And uh, and and there, in verse 27, we enter into the next Taladot. And in, in your chart down there, at the bottom of your chart, uh, you'll notice I have uh, the three sons of terror listed, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. From the passage that we've read, what do we know about Haran? He died when? Okay, apparently young, yeah, mm-hmm. but not so young that he didn't have children, right? Okay, so he did. He lived to adulthood. He lived uh, at least long enough to have children. Uh, and and who were his children? Okay, Lot was one. Who else? Milka, okay, and then there's another name in there, yes, Iska, okay, we don't have a clue who Iska is, okay, so you can just, you know, I don't know why that name is in there, there's commentaries have all kinds of suggestions about why that particular name is in there, but we don't know anything about Iska, but we know some things about Lot, what do we know about Lot? A lot, a lot. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but let's start right here, what do we know about Lot here? in this passage what we looked at? Abram's okay, he's Abram's cousin. Okay, he's who? He's what? Abram's nephew. Nephew. He's Abram's nephew. What else do we know about him from the passage we've read? There's a clue when I say from the passage we read. That's an indication you should go back and look at the verses we just read and you'll find the answer to the question. It, it it appears that way, yeah. Uh, they all went to the land of Canaan. Oh, well, not to Canaan. To oh, I was just reading verse 31. That's why I said that. Uh, <laughs> they headed they headed out to go to Canaan, but they never made it that far. Okay. All... Yeah, so they went out together. Yes. In order to enter. Yes. And they went as far as Haran. Okay. So the, so I saw. Yeah. So we know that Lot went with Terah his his uh, grandfather and with Abram his uncle. And others, and presumably also, although it doesn't say here in the passage, presumably also Nahor went with them. Okay, and I say that because we find that Nahor's descendants ultimately are in Haran, and so I assume that they also went at the same time. But we don't know that for sure. Okay, what do we know about this other descendant or, or child of Haran, Milcah? Well, that was in the days. Before. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know, you know, about we will people. ignore that remark and go <laughs> on with my question. What do we know about Milka? <laughs> Pardon? Okay. She married her uncle Nahor. Okay. Or Nahor married his niece, Milka. Okay. I like Milka is a good and all brand. Oh! And then, this is not in the passage we read, but in the (laughs) diagram below, I diagrammed out for you the descendants of Nahor and Milcah because they become significant later in the story. Rick, I think your class got distracted. I think they did. (laughs) I I brought them right back. (laughs) Nahor and Milcah uh, 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 parented a man by the name of Bethuel. And Bethuel parented some children, among whom were a son and a daughter. The son's name was Laban, and the daughter's name was Rebekah. What do we know about about the granddaughter of Nahor, Rebekah? Okay, she becomes Isaac's wife. Okay, so when we get to that whole story about Abraham sending his servant back to Haran, to find a wife for Isaac, this is where he's going. He's going to the descendants of the household of Milcah and Nahor. Okay? So she gave, uh, he gave, he uh, gave, a parented, or fathered Laban and Rebekah. What do you know about Laban? Okay? He fathered Rachel and Leah, and what do we know about Rachel and Leah? Okay, They became the two wives of Jacob, a whole story full of intrigue that we will eventually get to as we go through Genesis. Okay, So I just put that diagram down there, because, and you'll want to keep this diagram and refer to it later when we get on further in the story so you can make these connections because when they keep going back to Haran to find wives for their sons... This is where they're going back to, uh, this is where they're going back to, and this is who they're going back to, and, and we'll explore the significance and the meaning of that when we get to it. But at any rate, I want to diagram all that for you because I'm kind of a visual learner, and it helps me if I can see things kind of diagrammed out. And, uh, and if you want a more precise diagram than I managed to put together the other day, you'll have to do it yourself. But at any rate, that was, uh, <clears throat> that was for you uh, just to help you kind of visualize and think through things, okay. So, so we're just kind of laying a foundation here, kind of a, a grid work that we can use as we go through the life of Abraham and we talk about the life of Abraham. These things, this, this information will help us get a better understanding. One of the things we have to do in order to understand Scripture is we have to struggle as much as we can to put ourselves in the, in the context, the historical and the geographical context. And the more we do that, the better we'll be able to understand the kinds of things that the people that we're reading about experienced and why they responded the way they did and why they responded to one another and why they responded to God the way they did. So this information, uh, while at some point it may seem like just data, it becomes information that's helpful in in creating a picture that helps us then understand and interpret the Scripture. Okay. Well, <clears throat> with all of that said then, I'd like to focus then on these on, on, on the last few verses that we read as we begin this uh, sixth Taladot of Genesis, the one that has to do with Terah. And it says that Terah had uh, three sons. He had uh, Abram, he had Nahor, and he had Haran, as we've already talked. And it says, Haran died in the presence of his father in, a, in the land of his birth in the Ur of the Chaldees. Okay. Now, I, I just kind of drew this map up here, just again to kind, of, kind of help visualize things. If you remember, Ararat, Mount Ararat's up here in this area. Okay, so after the flood, Noah and his three sons come off the ark up here, north of north of Harran, up here in the area of what is Armenia today. Okay, and uh, and as we studied when we studied the uh, the previous Taladot, we we learned that over a period of time the majority of the population of the earth migrated westward and migrated southwest until they came down to the area of Babylon and there they built the Tower of Babel and the whole Tower of Babel story. And then, of course, God dispersed the nations at that point through the introduction of languages and the nations dispersed kind of all over the world and we studied that when we looked at the table of nations, how they went just kind of all over the place. Well, we discover then... That the descendants of Shem, after the Tower of Babel, at least in the linear line, the linear genealogy that we're studying, they migrated where from the from Babylon. Where did they go? Or we, at least we can say, I think, safely conclude they went as they migrated from Babel. They went to Ur, okay? So, so Babel's up here in this area, right up in here, uh, closer to what, where uh, modern Baghdad is today, kind of over in this area. And they obviously migrated, at least some of the family migrated down to the area of Ur, okay? And, and by the time they get to Ur, we're beginning, we're beginning at this point to get into a time frame in which we have a lot of archaeological evidence. So we're getting in a time frame of 2,000, 2,200 B.C. or so, and we have a great deal of archaeological evidence. We have a great deal of archaeological evidence and data about the city of Ur. Okay, And Ur was actually a, great, a, a, a fairly significant city that was right here on the, on the eastern bank, of the Euphrates River and down close to, uh, close to the Persian Gulf. And, and, and by the time that Abraham was alive, it was a fairly sophisticated, developed society. Okay? Oftentimes we think back in these ancient history times and, and, and you know, we start thinking cavemen and stuff like that. Okay? But that's not what we're talking about here with Ur, or, or in fact with many of the cities that, uh, that existed in Mesopotamia at this time. But you have a city in Ur, which the the whole kind of complex area probably consisted of somewhere between 100 and 300,000 people, archaeologists tell us. And within the actual walls of the city, uh, the walls of the city were about, they were earthenware wall, earthenware, uh, 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 I want to say earthenware, that's not right, what's the word I'm looking for? any rate, there were earth embankments around the city, about 70 feet thick, about two and a half miles in circumference. And so within the walls of the city, there were probably about 25,000 or so people that lived. And we actually have pictures of Iraqis excavating the city of Ur. And you can actually see Iraqis walking through these ancient streets with the buildings on either side, these very narrow streets of the city of Ur. Okay? And, and Ur was a. By the by, by, the time that Abraham was born and was growing up in the city of Ur or in the region of Ur, Ur, Ur was, as I said, a fairly sophisticated commercial and religious center. They actually had a ziggurat right in the middle of the city inside these city walls. Remember, we talked about what a ziggurat was. The Tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat. Okay? And this particular ziggurat in Ur uh, went up, I forget now how high, something like 70 feet or something, kind of like a pyramid. And on the top they had a temple in which they, they worshiped the moon or they worshiped the moon god or whatever. So there was this, all this idolatry involved. And you had a number of people in the city and the region of ur who were associated with that whole temple worship, so they were they were basically kind of the temple people or the temple we might think of them as the temple class. Of course, you also had another class of people, uh, the aristocracy we always seem to always have to have aristocracy, and they had an aristocracy uh, uh, and and so you had that class and But you also had at this point you had a, 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 a rising commercial class of people. okay, And, and uh, Ur, because of where it's located on the Euphrates River, was actually involved a great deal in what we would think of today as international trade. So there were ships going up the Euphrates River and ships going down the Euphrates River and out into the Persian Gulf and, and, and down the Persian Gulf and trading with other tribes and nations and peoples from various parts of the world, and there were also trade routes going up over the arch and coming down into Canaan and Egypt, and so they were trading to the west, and they were trading with uh, with uh, people groups out to the east, out in what we think of today as Iran and places like that. So it was a fairly developed economic center. Now, most of the people, it was, and, and another thing we know about the people of Ur is it was a sedentary culture. We no longer have as much migration and moving around going on, particularly with the people of Ur as we've seen so far in the history uh, of, uh, of the world as we've studied it so far. And later as we get on in the story of Abraham, we're going to be talking a lot about him kind of as a nomad. He's got his tent and he's moving around. and stuff. But this is not the way Abraham grew up. Abraham grew up in a fairly established city. So when Abraham picks up his uh, family and he moves as he does twice in his life, once apparently under the auspices of his father and then later on his own, this is really a kind of a really pretty significant development in the life of Abraham. Because up to this point, he's living in a fairly stable place in a stable culture with sedentary people who pretty much just kind of live and die where they were born. Okay, And uh, and we assume, too, as we study the life of Abraham, we begin to find out he's quite wealthy. By the time he gets to Canaan, not too long after he gets to Canaan, he has an entourage that a prob- that's just associated with him, his servants and his household. This is before he's had any children. But his servants and his household and those just associated with him that he's responsible for and from which he can recruit a military force he has an entourage, probably nearly a thousand people that he's responsible for. So this guy's got bucks <laughs> or shekels or whatever. You know, he's got money. Okay, So he obviously comes from a family of great uh, wealth. So we assume that Abraham was part of this rising commercial class that existed in Ur. Another reason we assume, assume that is because he was he was free to move. As we say, it was a sedentary culture. And so most people pretty much stayed put and there had to be something pretty significant in your life, even to give you the freedom to move. The aristocracy, of course, they couldn't move. The temple uh, class, they couldn't move. They were pretty much tied down to their temple and stuff, so they weren't free to move around. And, of course, there's the average farmer Joe on the street. You know, he couldn't afford to move. So we assume that Abraham Abraham was part of this rising commercial class, which would explain, incidentally, why his father Terah, initially sets out from Ur to go to the land of Canaan. They apparently have contacts. They have knowledge. They have some information about other parts of the world. And as we learn from the passage here, they set out from Ur to go to the land of Canaan and they travel the route that is normally traveled to do that up along the river and then down the arch and into Canaan. And, but they only get as far as Haran, and they stop. Okay? We have no idea why but they stop kind of halfway on their way to Canaan. Now, one of the things that is significant about what Terah and his family are doing at this point is they are moving in the opposite direction of the previous migrations. Previously we talked about how people were migrating to the east, okay? But now this family is migrating to the west. They're really kind of going counterculture at this point, okay? They're going the opposite direction. I I assume that For them, it was just a good business venture, at least for Terah. Remember, Terah is an idol worshiper, as Joshua tells us in Joshua 24. But we learn some things about Abraham and other passages in Scripture that we don't know from the passage that we're looking at here. And one of the things that we learn, Nehemiah tells us, that God took Abram out of Ur. Now, so we didn't see that in this passage here. We just saw Terah took his, you know, Abram and he took uh, Sarai and Lot and they left and they, and they headed for Canaan and they only got as far as, as Haran. But when we read Nehemiah, we find out that really God was doing that. That God had a plan. Okay? And as we read other accounts, for example, some things that Stephen says in his sermon in chapter 7 of Acts, and things that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11. Even though we haven't heard it yet or seen it yet, we won't see it until next week in the lesson we look at next week. It appears that Abraham got some kind of call from God when he was in Ur. And that God was calling uh, Abram out and telling Abram, I've got a place for you and I've got a place for you to go. Now, I don't to be honest with you I don't know the role that that call that he apparently got when he was an er played in relationship to simply the fact that his father who was an idol worshipper was moving to Canaan and eventually went as far as Haran. I don't know totally how those two things interplay with one another and scripture doesn't really tell us. But one of the things that the writers of scripture in various places for example, Nehemiah and, and, and Luke in the book of Acts and, and, and the writer of Hebrews, one of the things that they, that they apparently want us to understand is that even though Abram at this point is moving with his father, as you would in a patriarchal society, Abram is doing this as an act of faith because he believed God, believes God wants him to go. Okay. Now, as we'll see next week, The call that he gets beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, 2, and 3, the specific call that he gets from God, God tells him he wants him to go, but he doesn't tell him where he wants him to go. He says, you just go and I'll show you the place. Now, personally, I believe the call that's represented in chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3, although we don't know for certain, it seems to me that that call came to him in Haran. We do know that he got a call in Haran. And we think he got a call in Ur, okay? So we think he got two calls, and it's not, clear, it's not absolutely clear which one of those calls, chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, is. But it seems to me that it is the second call. And when God calls Abram the second time, He says, I want you to get up and leave your father and your your home and your father's place and your family, etc. And you go to a place where I will show you. It's quite clear that when Abram leaves Haran, as we'll see next week, he still really doesn't know for sure where he's going. Which means when he left Ur, he didn't know where he was going. Okay. If he had known where he was going when he left her, he would have known where he was going when he left Haran. But because he didn't know where he was going when he left Haran, ultimately, he didn't know what place God had for him. Even though his father's intent was to go to Canaan, Abram didn't know the place that God had for him. He was just moving with his family in some response somehow to the call of God in his life. Now, the thing that begins to come out to me here, and we'll talk a whole lot about this over the next number of weeks, is Abraham's, or Abrams as we know him so far, Abrams' remarkable, simple trust in God. That Abraham, when God speaks to him, he just goes, okay, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know, I don't know what you have for me. But you said move, and so I will move. And he goes as far as Haran, and then he stops. And we don't know how long he was in Haran, but I assume it was a considerable period of time, because later in Scripture Haran is referred to as Abraham's kind of homeland. Okay, so so it's referred to as his homeland, uh, and and so I assume that he was there long enough that 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 he really considers that more his home than where he was originally born and raised. Okay, So at some point, he moves to Haran and he stops and he spends a considerable period of time there. And the question is, why did he stop? Why didn't he keep going? Did Abraham's faith falter at this point? Did his commitment to obey God falter at this point? I don't think so. It seems to me quite clear that Abraham understood that God was going to show him where he should go. Now, when you've been convinced that God was going to show you what you should do and you move forward on that, have you ever gotten to a point where God just wasn't giving you any clear direction? And you just have to kind of stop at that point and wait until God makes it clear again it's time to move. I think that's exactly what's happening here. Abram is simply waiting on God. He really doesn't know what's going on. But he's just having to trust God. And one of the things we begin to see in this very, very earliest part of the story of Abraham is that Abraham is having to learn the little lessons of faith before he can be confronted with the really big challenge. We're going to find very shortly as we move forward in the story and as he gets to Canaan, God's going to tell him some stuff that's really going to take some pretty incredible faith. And we read that and we go, well, that's pretty cool. Abraham had all this great faith. But I don't believe that Abraham was able to trust God for the promises that were going to be unfolded to him once he got to Canaan out of the clear blue sky. I think Abraham had built a habit of believing and trusting God in the smaller issues of life. And he had learned to wait upon God and trust God and to move when God made it clear he should move and to stay and when he wasn't seeing a clear direction from God to simply stay put until he did see a clear direction from God. But there's another issue in Abraham's life that greatly tested his faith. And as we go through the story here, it's just thrown out at us. It just... Hits us in the face so stark and so harsh. As he says to us, almost out of the blue again, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, notice how he says that? He says, Sarai was barren. Yeah, I know what that means. you know what that means? I know what that means. But he doesn't stop there. He says, she had no child. And it's like Moses is trying to say to us, hey guys, this is significant. And of course, we'll see how significant it is as we go forward in the story. But I think what he's trying to tell us is it's significant at this point in the story. And and one of the reasons it's significant is because everything we've been talking about for the last number of chapters is people and genealogies and generations and who fathers who and the whole significance of the whole story is all wrapped up And who is whose father and who is whose son and who's having children and what's happening with those children and where those children are gone. And we are now studying, we are now looking, as we said, at the line of promise that God is setting forth before us, the line of promise. How that promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent would come and through whom it would come. And so we come down through the story and Abraham somehow knows about God. He doesn't know about God from his father. So where did he learn about God? God. Well, from God, okay. But look at your chart. Yeah, there were others before him. You know it's feasible. I don't know whether it happened or not. It's feasible that Abraham learned about God on the knees of Shem. Someone who had actually been on the ark. Yeah, that's, pretty, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? We begin to see the role of, of grandparents and great-grandparents in inculcating the faith into our children's children. Okay? And we see it here. But at any anyway, rate, so Abraham learns about God and he learns about this line of promise and he learns about this coming seed that was going to crush the head of the serpent and he learned that God has a plan and he's moving through this plan and he's moving through this lineage. but Abraham knows that in his life he will never get to be a part of that because Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so Abraham is a guy who doesn't walk with God because he expects God is going to do big things in his life. Because since his wife is barren, he really doesn't get to play a role in any of this. But he's still going to be faithful to God. And he's still going to walk with God. Now, ultimately, we see as the story unfolds that he does get to be a part of this whole thing in a way like nobody else ever did or will. Okay, So that does eventually happen. But to Abraham, his walk with God was, was because he loved God and he believed God and he was determined to obey God even if he didn't get to play a role in this whole thing. Because Sarai was bare and she had no child. And so Abraham is just begins, at the very beginning, we, we begin to see this, this element of character in his life and this element of faith in his life. And, 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 and the question that comes to my mind and maybe comes to your mind as I think about that is, is you know, I, 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 I kind of like to think about doing really big things and important things. But, but I, am, I the kind of, am I the kind of person Abraham was who says, even though the circumstances in my life seem to indicate that that may not happen, will I walk with God? Will I honor Him? Will I stand for Him even as Abraham had to do in a, when he was surrounded by an immediate family of idol worshippers? His brother Nahor worshipped idols. His father worshipped idols. Apparently, Nahor, his grandfather, worshipped idols. But in that context, Abram was determined that he was going to listen to God and his heart was going to be open to God and he was going to trust God and he was going to walk by faith. And, he, and Abraham walked by faith and he learned those little lessons of faith. So ultimately, when he stands there on the hills of Canaan, And God says to him, you look out at this land as far as you can see, this land will be your land. Even though he is at this time still dwelling in tents and always dwells in tents his whole life. God says, this will be your land. And he says, I will give you descendants greater than the stars of the sky. How could Abraham... And and we discover that Abraham believed God when God gave him that promise and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. But how did Abraham get to a point where he could believe a promise that big? I think he got that way because at every small point he made a choice. I'm going to trust God here. And he built, in his ha- he built into his life the habit of faith that ultimately made it possible for him to believe God for this remarkable, stunning promise that we'll be studying about in the weeks ahead. Okay? Well, next week we'll go on and we'll learn about his actual migration to Canaan and all that's involved there. I